is Popery the Antichrist? The tendency of prophecy to describe things according to the reality, rather than the appearance or profession. The interpretation which has been given in the text of the strongest terms in the Apostles' language respecting the Antichrist, by understanding them of a virtual, in contradistinction to a formal and avowed assumption of blasphemous prerogatives, is so much in accordance with the general style of prophecy, and so plainly demanded by the connection, that we cannot refrain from expressing our wonder, at finding interpreters of note still pressing the opposite view. Their doing so must be regarded as another instance of that tendency to literalism, which has wrought such confusion in the prophetical field, and which, at particular points, returns upon some, who in general have attained to a correct discernment of the characteristics of prophecy. The practice of describing things by their real, as opposed to their professed or apparent character, is one that peculiarly distinguishes the apocalyptic imagery. Thus the worldly kingdoms, both in Daniel and the Revelation, are represented as beasts, not as they actually were, or gave themselves out to be such, but because they pursued a course which partook largely of the bestial nature. They were, one might say, virtual beasts. And the false, seductive power designated Babylon, the mother of harlots and the abominations, we may be sure, was not going to proclaim her own shame by declaring herself to be what those epithets import. Beyond all doubt, she is described according to what she really was, not by what she would profess to be. In like manner, the names of blasphemy on the head of the beast indicate a real rather than a professed dishonor to the God of heaven. For open profanity and avowed atheism have, with few exceptions, been studiously avoided by the worldly power. It has almost uniformly striven to associate with its different forms of government and political aims the name and sanctions of religion. Even in the more prosaic parts of the Apocalypse we find the same characteristic prevailing, as when it describes the soaring spirit of the Gnostic teachers, by their knowing the depths of Satan, not those of God, which they themselves rather affected to understand, and designates them by such epithets as Nicolaitans, people destroyers, followers of Balaam, Jezebels, which they were so far from professing to be, that they laid claim to the highest gifts and the most honorable distinctions. Nor could it be otherwise with the wolves, of whose coming St. Paul warned the Ephesians elders Acts 20. They were not going, when they appeared, to avow their own wolf-like character, but would, doubtless, aspire to the place of guides and shepherds of the flock. All prophecy, indeed, abounds with examples of this mode of representation. 4. Speaking as with divine intuition, it ever delights to penetrate through showy appearances, and to strip deceivers of their false disguises. Thus the self-deifying pride of the Chaldean conquerors has its representation in the prophet Habakkuk, by their being characterized as successful fishers, sacrificing to their own net, chapter 1 verse 16. And the corruption of degenerate Israel is exhibited with singular boldness by Ezekiel, under the form of their having had an Amorite father and a Hittite mother. Chapter 16 verse 3. And by Isaiah, under the announcement, as from themselves, that they had made a covenant with death, and come to an agreement with hell. Chapter 28 verse 15. By a still bolder figure the prophet Amos calls the tabernacle in the wilderness the tabernacle of their Moloch, because the idolatrous and unsanctified spirit which still clung to them rendered it practically an idol tent rather than that of the true God. Chapter 5 verse 26. 
these and many similar representations are obviously designed to set before us the real state and character of the parties described, though entirely different from the outward profession and appearance. On any other principle it were impossible to render much that is written in prophecy either intelligible in itself, or consistent with the facts of history. The violation of this principle in regard to the passages which treat of the anti-Christian apostasy, by adhering to a mistaken literalism, is the more to be regretted, as it is doing with this portion of the prophetic scriptures what it has already done with those which have respect to the promised Messiah, it is altogether destroying in the hands of its abettors their apologetic value. As, with the one class of predictions, Jewish rabbis find themselves backed by Christian literalists in denying the fulfillment of some of the clearest prophetic innovations in the history of Jesus of Nazareth, so Romish controversialists are sheltering themselves under the wing of Protestant interpreters of the same school, in rebutting the application of the scriptural Antichrist to Popery. Thus, in a small volume recently published on the end of the world, or the second coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, by the very Rev. John Baptist Pagani, a very adroit use is made of the name of the late Mr. Faber. An astonishment is first expressed that any intelligent person could ever have thought of identifying the Pope of Rome with the Antichrist of Scripture, especially that this could be done in so enlightened a country as England. And then a passage from Mr. Faber's calendar of prophecy is quoted to show how a sensible Protestant writer exposes the absurdity of the idea. In the passage referred to, the argument is thrown into what is considered both by Mr. Faber and by his Catholic admirer as a conclusive syllogism. I shall throw my argument, Mr. Faber says, into the form of a syllogism, and if any person be able to confute me, I shall be very ready to own myself mistaken. According to St. John, he who denies the Father and the Son, this is the Antichrist. The line of the Roman pontiffs did not deny the Father or the Son. Therefore the line of the Roman pontiffs is not the Antichrist. Embracing with satisfaction this triumphant syllogism, Mr. Pagani proceeds to give it additional strength by affirming, that so far from denying the Father and the Son, the Roman pontiffs have always maintained the doctrine of the Trinity against Deists, Sabellians, Unitarians, and other heretics. That they have uniformly held, that Christ has come in the flesh that they have also been remarkably distinguished for their humility, taking for their ordinary title, unworthy ministers of Christ, servants of the servants of God, whereas Antichrist is to exalt himself above all that is called God. One might go through a considerable portion of prophecy with this sort of syllogism, and ask in vain for anything in the transactions of real life that would answer to the terms of the predictions. What, on such a style of interpretation, could be made of the passages to which we have been adverting. Must we suspend the veracity of one prophet on the question, whether the proud Chaldeans actually hung up a net in some temple and did sacrifice to it? Or that of another, on the similar question, whether the Israelites literally bore about during their long sojourn in the wilderness an idolatrous tabernacle, an impious rivalry to that of Jehovah? Or must we have credible testimony to the fact, that the great worldly monarchies, as they successively arose, did each proclaim their own beast-like and blasphemous character? Or, finally, shall we hold that nothing can verify the description given of the mystic Babylon, which does not set itself openly to establish and avow the prostitution of all righteous principle? If such be the kind of expectations, with which we proceed to examine the prophetic word, 
we may certainly lay our account to meet with few instances of fulfillment. We know not where they are to be found in the past, and are afraid they shall in vain be looked for in the future. But surely, if the Apostle in his day knew persons in the Christian church, whom he could declare to be the enemies of the cross of Christ, even while they were avowedly looking to the cross for salvation, the pontiffs of Rome might justly enough be characterized as denying the Father and the Son, if they should be found claiming prerogatives, and upholding a system of error and delusion, which virtually subvert the revelation given of the Father and the Son in Scripture. Let it just be granted, that in the descriptions of the collective Antichrist, the apostles had their eye on the realities, not on the mere appearances of things, no very extravagant postulate surely, then the proper syllogism will stand. Thus, the Antichrist, according to St. John, is he who denies the Father and the Son. But the line of the Roman pontiffs, by their own blasphemous assumptions, and by their system of legalized falsehood and corruption, utterly opposed to the spirit and design of the Gospel, have denied what is revealed of the Father and the Son. Therefore the line of the Roman pontiffs is Antichrist. This we take to be a truer form of syllogism than Mr. Faber's. But it only meets one fallacy involved in the interpretation. There is another in its taking for granted, that the representations in John's epistles are to be regarded as comprehensive of all that was to characterize the spirit and conduct of the Antichrist. He merely points to one of the first forms and manifestations of the evil that which took shape under the hands of the Gnostic teachers. By and by this was to lead on to others, of which not less distinct intimation was given elsewhere in the New Testament writings. The anti-Christian spirit was to assume different phases, according to the peculiar influences of the time, and the changing fortunes of the church. But they were all to have one thing in common. Under a profession of Christianity, there was to be something in doctrine or practice, which in effect made void the Christian truth and life. This in every form was to be the characteristic of anti-Christian as contradistinguished from atheism, heathenism, or undisguised worldliness. And hence, so far from expecting that the popes, or any other embodiments of the Antichrist, should formally assume what is predicted of this power, we should rather expect the reverse. We should expect a studious effort to disguise the truth of the case, though such a one as should only impose upon the ignorant or the corrupt. And precisely as the servant of servants can in lordly arrogance place his foot upon the necks of princes, and claim the ascendancy over all earthly power and authority, so under a boastful proclamation of the doctrine of the Trinity, and indeed the conversion of the cross into a magic charm, may thereby found the most substantial denial of the Father and the Son. In a word, the question is, not what Popery pretends to be, but what it really is. With this alone we have to do in determining its relation to the prophetic delineations of Scripture. And when the subject is viewed in this light, he must be strangely blinded or unhappily biased, who fails to perceive the striking correspondence between the one and the other. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. 
Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.